marketers can't just assume it. And I think a lot of times they do assume that now just because they're putting it online and they can get it out to people, people will trust it. You have to really prove that trust. DigitalMarketingRadio.com The Big Interview with David Bain How should you get started in content marketing? How do you determine the content that performs the best? And how do you best serve your existing customers with content marketing? Those are just three of the questions that I intend to ask my special guest today, Daniel Burstein. Daniel, welcome to DMR. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome. Well, Daniel is Director of Editorial Content at MEC Labs, working with a team of reporters digging for actionable information while serving as an advocate for the audience. So, Daniel, how have website visitors' expectations of content changed over the past few years? Well, that's a great question because when we think back, and we were talking on the pre-call about how much time you spent uh, online and online marketing. We think back in the early days of online marketing, it was just impressive that there were websites, right? People Mm. were just happy to be able to go online at any time of day or night. I remember uh, some of the the first ads for some of the brick-and-mortar companies who had uh, websites up was, you could visit our store 24-7, right? It it was was just that big of a deal. Um, And so in the early days, People were just happy to be able to go on, an, on a website and get any information. Um, but as, as things has, have evolved, especially in the late 2000s, uh, uh, late uh, of last decade, 2008, 2009, leading into um, you know the turn of the decade, there have been such a growth in social media, in blogs, in online content in general, that there's just been a lot of noise that's been created, right? And so um, com- customers now have to try to find a way to filter through that noise. So it's not enough to just give them basic information. You really have to serve them, and you really have to give them something that helps answer a key question or a key pain point they have. So sometimes when I talk to marketers now, they, they have a blog up or they have a free ebook or they have a free white paper, and they think that's something of value because it's, it's free. The audience could get it there, and it's free. Mm. Uh, but it's really not because – when you think about it, they're paying with their time, they're paying with their energy, they're paying with attention. So, so to get back to your original question, I think the biggest way things have changed is, is the bar has really been raised. There, there's so much content out there now. Customers expect so much more. And when you're looking at your content, you have to really determine what, what is the value proposition of this piece of content for my customers, right? Even if it's free content, why would someone pay with their time? Why, why would they want to visit my site? Why would they want to read a blog post? Um, and it's 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 gotten pretty difficult. I got I got to admit. Okay, so um, the content publisher has got to focus on quality. Certainly, quite a few years ago, though, I guess people reading content online weren't so sure whether to believe it or not. So, would you say it's fair to say that? Um, people are more likely to believe the information or trust the information that they um, read online as a valued source? So I would say they are open to that idea, right? They, they still know there are still so many scams out there. We get, uh, you know, the emails for the Nigerian pills or whatever, you know. The, the, and, and there's so many different now, um, I think, not to, not to lambast any industry, but with the rise of affiliate marketing too, there's just so much content out there that's not of quality that seems like it's just some sort of way to separate people from their money. So um, they don't necessarily immediately think that anything online is of value because of that. 
However, since more things online now are of value, they're more open to that. So the people that maybe five years ago would never look past a print source or an established source are open to the idea that something online is of that value. But marketers can't just assume it. And I think a lot of times they do assume that now just because they're putting it online and they can get it out to people, people will trust it. You have to really prove that trust. And of course, um, content has gone through different phases online. Um, certainly for some time, about 10 years ago, um, a lot of the content was produced was low quality, aimed at appearing high in search engines, just, just targeting keyword phrases. But actually the content itself that was written was probably three or 400 words on a page, um, low quality, aiming just to trap people into giving their name and email address for further communication with that website. But now, you know, partly thanks to Google's alg algorithm, the quality of content has, of course, uh, improved. Um, I mean, how do you think a business getting started in content marketing now should approach the type of content they're producing? Well, you make a great point. I mean, Google's algorithm has really forced uh, many content marketers to up their game. Um, I think the best way, I think there's there's two or three things that really uh, someone starting out in content marketing should do. Um, the first thing, before they even write any piece of content, is determine what their value proposition is. So determine what their value proposition is for their ultimate product or service or however they're going to make money to their customers. Right, That's their main value proposition. And then determine what part of that value proposition they should be giving out as free content. Right. So what element there of content could they create will serve an audience. And so when you do this activity, what you find is, um, for many companies, it's about finding the right niche, so to speak. So I was um, dealing with a company in the, the medical industry field, um, to, be, to be vague, uh, they're, they're in clinics, um, and they were working on their content marketing. And the challenge they had, they said, is that, well, the Mayo Clinic is creating similar content to what we would want to serve our audience. So how do you possibly compete with the Mayo Clinic, right? Mm. And as we dived into it, we found out they do have a sort of niche. The Mayo Clinic, uh, if you're familiar with it, you, you might not be in the UK, they only have three locations in the US. Um, there's one in Minnesota, there's one in Phoenix, and there's actually one right across the street from our audience here in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, but the clinic we were dealing with had 100, 200 clinics across the country. And so their real answer was to find that niche, to find that local value of, okay, if you're in um, you know, Detroit, Michigan or whatever, um, you want to perhaps go to a local clinic to solve whatever problem you have, well, focus on you know, Detroit, Michigan and how we can serve them and with some of those problems. While the Mayo Clinic might always get better, Google SEO might always get people to trust it more um, as a whole nationally and internationally. And that's true. That might be hard for a company to compete with. They can find that niche and that spot. Um, and then once you've, once you've determined that value proposition for your company and for your content, once you've found um, what that right niche is, um, which is probably where your value proposition is going to lead you, um, the last thing is really just helping people. It comes down to people only buy service or product for, for two reasons. Um, one, they have a pain point they want to overcome, right? Um, or the other thing is they have a goal they want to achieve. So find out how through your content can you help them overcome those pain points? What questions can you answer for them? Or how can you help them meet those goals? I mean, that's ultimately what people are looking for in content. And one of the interesting things is there, you didn't give any mention at all to researching keyword phrases before. Does that mean that keyword research has become less important than it was perhaps five years ago? Well, I'm glad you bring that up because one thing we've seen with um, some of these Google algorithm changes um, 
so one for for marketingsherpa.com we are very excited and thankful to uh, our friends over there in california for making those uh google al algorithm changes because if you're familiar with marketing sherpa if i may say we have we have some pretty rich uh content some pretty long form content that hopefully is valuable to the audience and we've seen our traffic double because of those changes um but marketers i've talked to who found ways to and let's be frank, they were gaming the system. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this has really hurt their traffic. I, one of the best analogies I heard was, um, you know, we were on Main Street, you know, like if you were a brick and mortar on Main Street and overnight uh, the streets got ripped up and we got moved over to 3rd Street or 4th Street. Um, because a lot of them were, were too focused on ways to, you know, how can I find that uh, that perfect keyword and stuff it a lot into the, um, the piece of content mm. to, to try to fool Google. So, yeah, once you've done a few of these things, so once you've figured out your value proposition, once you've, you know, figured out your niche, once you've figured out, um, you know, what are your, your cu uh, customers' pain points, uh, what goals you help them achieve, I think that's when the keywords come in, but they should come in as as uh, maybe Google wants us to organically, right? They should mm. come in naturally because we're answering the, the types of questions that customers ask in the language they ask it. So these are naturally the things they're going to search for. So while, yes, you can look online and there's a lot of tools to see what they're searching for, and that's one, one piece of research that can help, the other thing that you can do is talk to some customers. So Christian Javago um, is, is a great proponent of this. She talks about interviewing 7, 10, 20 of the top customers and ask them the types of things they're asking for. And she said that she's even found in her research that we always assume people go right to Google. She's found recently, this has just changed, that people are asking others more first before they're turning to Google. So the Google keyword isn't the first thing they're doing. They're first maybe reaching out through LinkedIn or Twitter or other social media and asking their friends first. So when you're able to answer those questions through your content, you're not only serving Google, uh, you're serving your customers, you're serving your champions, you're serving your influencers through through social media and through those conversations. Right, that's great advice. And, and of course, uh, another great source of keywords isn't uh, the Google Keyword Planner tool itself. It's actually Google Analytics because uh, you can tie your search box from your website back into your Google Analytics and you actually see what people are searching for on your website. And I guess that's an automated way of finding what your customers are actually searching for, as you, as you suggested. Yeah, so I think and it'd be interesting if, if um, you've found any ways to overcome this challenge. What I've seen is um, when you're looking at your inbound traffic, uh, the traffic that is coming from Google, Google has gotten a lot, uh, and we're talking only about Google, but obviously there's other search engines. Uh, they've gotten a lot stricter on passing that information over to, to the analytics. Yeah. So um, there's certain ways where, where you cannot get that um, information from your inbound traffic. But a great thing to do, as you mentioned, is if you set up a site search and see what people are looking for on your own site. Mm. Um, that's a great way to answer their questions. It's also a great way, mind you, to improve the usability of your website. So if you think the answer to whatever uh, key questions is very evident on your homepage or it's very evident on key landing pages, and you find these phrases showing up in your site search a lot, that's also an indication of you, you need to serve your customers better through creating content, but also just through the usability of your website. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. This um, this 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 no passing of um, keyword data because it's um, it's about ninety percent or so for most websites at the moment. So it's it's going to be a hundred percent at some point. So most businesses are now at a stage where they're not even bothering with the, the keyword data within analytics because it's so poor. Uh, but um, you know, you can look at things like landing pages. Um, you can look at um, you can still get ranking data. Um for certain keyword phrases and see what pages are ranking for those keywords and then make some kind of um, assumptions based upon that in terms of the, the traffic 
driven to your site from those keyword phrases. And you can look at Google Webmaster Tools, of course, as well. Um, you get 90 days worth of data within there as well, and it's important to, to download that data every month or so as so you've got a historical record of it. Um, but those are lots of different um, areas that you can pull data from, and it's, it's, it's tougher to get data from one source now. Yeah, and another thing you can do, and, and perhaps why Google has made some of these changes, is uh, you can test out keywords in pay-per-click advertising or phrases or or the types of uh, things your customers might be looking for. And um, that is a great way to test out what might, what might customers be interested in. And maybe it's people who don't know of your site yet. Um, you can also test through, if you have an email list, um, sometimes we test in email subject lines, like if we're trying to, to gauge uh, what might be a more interesting topic of, uh, for example, one of our web clinics, which is our series of webinars, we'll test different types of keyword phrases because people, use, people don't only use keywords when they're you know, actually typing them into the Google search engine. They're really also using them in probably when they're deciding to open your subject line. If they see the right combination of words, you know, they, they, that might interest them more in uh, clicking through. Okay, and, and what about the actual content itself? Do you tend to recommend largely text-based content, or is it best for a business to mix up the content, do a bit of infographic, a bit of video, a bit of images in there as well, um, or is it best to stick to one type of content? Yeah, that is a great question, and it's a, it's a, crush, a question we get asked often. And uh, the best answer we found is, Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. To all of your questions, um, because essentially what, what it all comes down to, not only the subject of your content, but the type of content is what is your audience interested in? So, you know, for example, I do not personally use Instagram, um, but I do know that if I had perhaps a surfing brand or a fashion brand, um, that audience is interested in Instagram. They're very visual. Um, you know, they're interested in Pinterest. Um, however, if you have, you know, perhaps a financial product or, uh, you know, an IT product that is a very, very high information product, you know, they might be interested in a very long form blog post or a 20 page ebook or a 30 page white paper. So the best process that I've found is one on the front end, you know, again, I don't think we definitely want to look at analytics and, and, and through, you know, our analytics platforms, we can see, um, what are some sources of inbound traffic already before we're, we're trying to goose them through certain means. And, um, we could find that, you know, for example, through marketing Sherpa, reproduce marketing charts, um, even before we, we put them on Pinterest or anything, we saw people were creating Pinterest boards and interested in it. And sometimes your customers can be a leading indicator in, in that fashion. Um, so you can see what your customers are doing. But also, um, you know, talking to your customers, interviewing them, surveying them to some level and asking, what are their most popular social networks? How do they like to consume content? What publications are they consuming right now? Um, and then also using, you know, a little bit of, as I said, the uh, common sense of what you think might work best, depending on um, your product. If, if it's if a visual makes a lot of sense, if a visual doesn't make a lot of sense, if it is a type of product that's very experiential, that a video would help, so you can see people using the product, or like a you know tourism type of thing where a video could help. Um, and then testing, you know, putting putting some of these different types of content out there, trying them out, and seeing what kind of return you get. What about content marketing for existing customers? Because a lot of content marketing nowadays is, is focused in part of the inbound marketing mix, um, really attracting, in a subtle way, new potential customers to your business. Um, but if someone has already purchased something for you, from you, 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 you've captured them to a certain degree, um, you've got their details, um, is the type of content that you would share with them any different to the type of content that you would publish with a name to attracting new customers? 
Yeah, so I think in, in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't. So um, in, in the ways that it is different is you know a little bit more about these people at this point, right? So you might have had some sort of intention data from people who haven't purchased from you, but once you have, you know the types of things they're interested in. And you also know that, that you've started to build a relationship with them as a company. So you might get into some more things about um, what you're actually doing as a company, the types of things you have coming up, the types of things that tie into the products they've already bought. Um, because I think you're, you're, you're keying in on something that is really overlooked by a lot of marketers, that they can serve not only the people who haven't bought yet, but the people that have. Um, but in in some ways, it isn't different in that, you know, again, essentially, you, you, you have those two big drivers that you're going after. What, you know, what pain points do they have um, and what goals do they want to meet? And sometimes those pain points that they have now that they're already your customer is how can they best use your product? Um, so I, w I worked in the um, software industry before, and one of the biggest challenges in the software industry at the enterprise level is not only to get uh, customers to purchase, but to get them to become repeat purchasers. And to do that, you've got to get them to use the product. So we've seen uh, companies like Microsoft and others do this where um, they have the content to help serve customers to get them to use the product more, to adopt it more. So by the time it comes up for renewal, or perhaps they have a, a free trial, by the time it comes up to pay, they see the value in, in what they're doing. Um, because the worst thing you can do is just sell to a customer and then walk away, right? And they don't see the value in the repeat purchase. Right, okay. And in terms of content marketing at the moment, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of great content marketing from solopreneurs, from independent consultants, but quite often larger organizations are actually struggling uh, with how to actually structure their content, whether it should be done by an individual within the organization, you know, how to actually name it, name it by the individual, name it by the company, what the tone of the content should be. Um, do you reckon that uh, is going to be increasingly the same and, and still an opportunity for those smaller businesses? Or, or are larger businesses actually starting to understand content marketing now and, and will they get on the juggernaut and make, take more advantage of that in the future? Yeah, I think you bring up uh, one of the great um, opportunities that the smaller businesses have over the bigger businesses, right? It takes mm. a lot longer to turn the Titanic, yeah. right, as we say, than the smaller companies. And the smaller companies can have that more one-to-one -one relationship. They, they just touch and feel the customers more. They get that better understanding. They, they can act quicker. But big companies, uh, they know they can't sit on the sidelines anymore. And I think one of the best examples of this was Oreo. So if you saw what Oreo did during the Super Bowl, I don't know if, if you're I, I didn't that, actually know. <laughs> Oh, so it's really, so, so obviously the Super Bowl is probably the absolute biggest day for advertisers here uh, in America. Sure. And so, you know, the traditional thing to do is spend millions of dollars on, on the, um, the uh, ad in the actual game. What Oreo did is they set up like this command center and they were ready for real time marketing. They were ready for something to happen that they were very going to quickly approve it and get it live. And so uh, at the Super Bowl in New Orleans, the actually the power went out. Um, and so they created, I think they created on Instagram or Facebook and they said, it's better to dunk in the dark. <laughs> and so right, right when the power went out, they, they acted very quickly. They created the campaign, they got it approved and they got it up in real time right. while that was going on. So this was a very trending conversation, right? The mm. blackout at the Super Bowl, that's, that's big news. Um, and they were able to get that up quick and they were able to get a lot of positive, uh, you know, vibes from their audience, uh, probably more than they would have with a, with a paid Super Bowl ad. So I think the, the, to answer your question, that the big companies are always going to face this challenge. You know, it's, it's not just with content, it's, it's with a lot of things. Um, they naturally have more hoops they have to jump through. Um, but they're, they're starting to catch on and they're, they're trying to find ways to overcome some of that bureaucracy and to, to be able to um, react quicker to these changes. 
And do you think that every successful business in the future will have to be a good content marketer? Or will there be still an opportunity for businesses to be successful, to be the leaders within their field and not be producing lots of their own content on a regular basis? Yeah, I think there's, there's, a big, there's a group of companies that don't need content. And that group is if you are the low price leader. So if you only sell on price, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your product is essentially commoditized and you are just out to sell the absolute cheapest product, um, then you do not need content. Um, you really don't need anything else than some way to get your price out there, <laughs> whether it's do some price comparison engine um, or an aggressive sales force or whatever you have. But if you want to do something more than be the low price leader, if you want to do something more than be a commodity, content is, at, at the end of the day, it's a way to show your customers value. Right. What is the value of spending more? Uh, because other than that, your customers are just going to look for the lowest price. And why shouldn't they? Right. I mean, can you can you blame them? Wouldn't you look for the lowest price if yeah. you didn't see greater value? Yeah. And um, I understand that you've um, produced um, a video or a few videos um, on case studies um, with regards to successful content marketing campaigns. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because we will um, embed one of those videos, certainly within the, the magazine, Digital Marketing Radio magazine. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the main things we do here at Marketing Sherpa is produce case studies uh, with brand side marketers, big companies, small companies, you know, all, all different types of companies. Um, and, uh, you know, definitely like to share one of those videos. I think one of them that comes to mind, I'm going to have to check if we have the video for it, is a company called McGladry. And McGladry is a major accounting firm. They're, I think, one of the top five accounting firms. And their challenge was, you know, as we talked about, you're brought up a good point that the challenges that big companies face, how do you create content, right? If, if you're a major company and uh, the marketer there was very smart. His name was Eric Webb and he created an entire process around his content. So it wasn't just a one-off thing that he hoped happened. He had um, his subject matter experts and he uh, paired them with reporters in a very smart way. It was able to uh, increase and boost the amount of content they created. So I think that could be helpful to, uh, a lot of marketers as they look to how are they actually going to produce this content. Lovely. Okay, well, we'll either embed that video or another similar one of your videos um, below this section of the magazine. But let's segue into the second section of our discussion, and that focuses on your thoughts on where digital marketing's been and where it's heading. So starting off with... Software I couldn't live without. What software do you currently use in your business that if someone took away from you, it would significantly impact the success of your business? So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, major software platforms we use, and uh, Marketing Sherpa is vendor agnostic, so I'm not going to name any of them by name, but, um, you know, an analytics platform, as we were talking about, right, is, is so valuable to get a sense of, um, you know, what your, what your customers are doing. Along with that, uh, split testing um, is also essential in trying to actually experiment and see how you can change that. Um, and, of course, you know, an ESP email is still at the core of much content. I mean, email is really the opportunity to get your customers to actually stop what they're doing and interact with your content because they have to choose to either click through or delete, open, whatever. They have to do something with it. Um, and, and along with that, an automation platform, which is usually tied in with the email. So we can create triggered campaigns that tie more into um, our customers' actions. Um, but an actual, as we talk about, like something I can mention, um, I find TweetDeck and Twitter to be extremely helpful as a, as a content creator. Mm. Um, linked, LinkedIn as well, because it's a great way to connect with possible sources. Uh, it's a great way to see what topics are trending. It's a great way to you know ask just general advice about what's coming up. It's a great way to see what people's questions are. 
Um, but then again, that, that's because my audience is um, on Twitter and LinkedIn pretty heavily, so I'm not saying that would work for everyone's audience. Right, okay. Um, I used TweetDeck a long time ago, but um, I think when it was still a, an Adobe Air product, uh, but I believe, yeah. it, I believe it's um, just online now, isn't it? You can actually, you can still download it. So that I'll, I'll say the downside of TweetDeck is it used to be more platform agnostic. So I, it was my all-in-one go-to place, and that's probably why I still use it, because you had LinkedIn, you had whatever else you wanted in there. Um, so since Twitter bought it, it's, it's pretty much only Twitter. But the great thing is you can set up some different search streams. So I set up a search for, you know, marketing Sherpa. I can set up a search for like email marketing or whatever types of things I'm reporting on uh, to see what different types of conversations are going on to really categorize those and and you know kind of keep track of everything because it, it moves pretty fast how do you how do you keep up with everything i use buffer app quite a bit um but that's more of a tool for actually scheduling things that's obviously useful if i'm um, interviewing someone and um, um I, i've hopefully got everything set up for the week so um, i'm going to be telling people about that um automatically but obviously posting on a daily basis so that's really useful for that um i've intended to get into hootsuite a little bit more um, because um, you know, I've recently launched social profiles on LinkedIn, on Google+, on Facebook um, for um, digital marketing radio. To, to be honest with you, I'm, I much more enjoy Twitter than other social interactions. So at the moment, uh, I'm tending to either go into Twitter or use the Twitter app on my uh, iPhone or on my iPad. Um, so um, apart from Buffer, I'm just tending to use um just, just, just the native Twitter um, app, really. I've, I've been into it quite a lot in the past. Um, I took a bit of a break, certainly from Twitter. Um, I did things like registering my my brand ID on Twitter back in two thousand and seven. Also, my name as well. And I was experimenting with using a brand, using myself. What's the what's the right way to do it? What's the right way to go? And really, back seven years ago or so. No one really knew. Everyone was experimenting with it. But I think now, I think it's quite common knowledge that probably the best thing to do is um, to go for yourself as a personal name and to put yourself out there, um, not to to hide behind a brand really as well. So um, over the last few months, you know, I've got back into using Twitter um, from my own name. And I think I'm going to carry on and evolve and, and use that a lot more in the future. But in terms of um, applications um, and, and, and other bits of software to use to actually make Twitter a better experience, um, I'm not using that much at the moment, but I may use uh, a bit more in the future. So I, I, I'll pro- possibly try TweetDeck at some point. Well, in terms of podcasting too, do you find is that has that been a good way to actually create relationships with people? Because it, it seems to be a great way to build your own personal uh, kind of brand and your own personal persona. You know, people really get to know you more than just on Twitter. You're actually talking to them every week. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's so good on so many different levels. Um, you can obviously produce um, great, well, hopefully great, <laughs> original content uh, on a regular basis. You know, I'm doing five different interviews every single week, um, publishing five interviews every week. You know, that's a half an hour interview per day. Um, so that's a, a lot of content that's produced. Um, some of it's for the magazine and, and just published in the magazine. Uh, I can take some of the transcript and use that um, to publish underneath the audio so that helps with search engine optimization um, I don't have to think about that at all I've got a, a set format for publishing everything um, so it's great for regular content um, that's obviously associated with an RSS feed and distributed out there so I'm finding at the moment that the the, the quantity of 
listens every week. It's early days, but every week is increasing by 20%, you know, which is a phenomenal amount, certainly. Um, you know, I'm distributed now through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud as well, and people can discover me through there. So those are different platforms um, that are really well thought of um, that um, people can find me on. Um, it's a medium that has suddenly started to flourish again. Um, ever since really um, smartphones and 4G um, started to become the norm. Uh, people were much more comfortable um, downloading audio content because it didn't matter to them. Um, they had enough bandwidth, they had, they, they had enough data within their monthly plan to be able to do that. Um, so um, it's hit a point where um, the majority of businesses are starting to realise they need to be content producers and content doesn't necessarily just involve writing. It can involve video as well. I I don't particularly enjoy producing um, lots and lots of different five-minute videos and different topics. You could go down that route, but you've also got to, produ- um, got to produce a form of content that you're comfortable in yourself, that you really enjoy doing. I, I, I like audio. And I also think um, people are more likely to listen to a lot of audio on a regular basis. They've got their smartphones in the pocket, they're on the train, um, they can listen to something, uh, but um, watching something is less likely, um, is less comfortable. But also a video podcast is a massive file size. Even with so much bandwidth nowadays, there's, there's limited storage capacity on iPhones. Um, so I think audio podcasts will always be more popular. And of course, then you've got to focus on quality as well. You know, I've got, I've got, I've got a decent um, radio studio quality microphone, uh, an Electro Voice RE20, and um, that produces um, decent audio. And it, it, it maybe costs about, um, I don't know, about um, $1,000 or just over $1,000 to, to get set up to be producing decent quality audio. But I think you have to do that now to differentiate yourself, differentiate yourself, to put yourself out there. Um, you know, I, I, I did my first podcast back in 2006 on a um, little headset that was um, poor quality. But, um, you know, you have to evolve. Um, <laughs> but I think the question was, you know, what about podcasting? Is that worth it? Absolutely. <laughs> well, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you say all that too, because you're bringing up a key point. And I love your microphone. I used to work at a radio station, and it, it. I don't know if it was the same one, but it looked pretty similar. It's very professional sounding. But I think you have to be that professional sounding. And I like how you mix in the different stingers, kind of that you have, and the audio that you yeah. have. Because the other thing that I didn't bring up is when we're creating content, we're not only competing against our competitors, right? So we're not competing against, in this sense, other people giving marketing information. We're competing against every other opportunity people have of things to listen to. Mm. So I listen to podcasts. I, I drive into work, you know, I drive out of work. When I'm commuting, I always listen to podcasts. And my decision is, what do I best want to listen to? It might be something about marketing or it might be something from, you know, HBO or, or, or any other content producer. So that's our real challenge in producing content. How do we get that mind share from people? And part of it is to... Hopefully, what we're doing here make it make it interesting. Not just give the information, but hopefully make it interesting and make it engaging and make it high quality. Talking about stingers, I wish I would have. <laughs> I'd like you to look back on the very first day that you're involved in trying to market a business online. What didn't you do so well? What do you wish that you would have done differently? I didn't do anything well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that the the biggest thing that that I've learned uh, the hard way is that there was not that focus on the customer. So. You get so involved in um, 
what your, your products you're trying to sell and what you're trying to market uh, that you forget to step out of it and see and ask like a customer that, that could care less about our product. Why would they be interested in it? And so you think, you know, I'm working hard. Um, I'm going to put all my focus and energy in this. Um, but then you don't step back and have a good um, you know, point of clarity and, and be able to see it through the customer's eyes. Uh, so one thing that really helps with that is A-B testing and split testing and, and some of those things to, to really test your assumptions and say, hey, this is really interesting to me about this product, um, but does anyone really care? Is, is this just interesting because I've done, you know, 80 hours of research into, uh, you know, servers or, uh, you know, what, whatever plumbing or whatever the thing is? Mm. Uh, or is this really interesting to the, the type of people that might buy? Is this really, and it, does, it, does it seem credible to the type of people that might buy? And there's a lot of people advocating at the moment that products aren't even produced until you've asked your customer, do you think this is the kind of thing that I should be producing? Would you buy this? Is, is that the kind of thing that you'd advocate yourself as well? Well, ab absolutely. And I, I think that's sometimes a challenge uh, if you're just in marketing that you face is you're brought in on a tail end. So all of these decisions were already made that we're going to sell this thing to the customer and then you don't have a voice in the well, does the customer even want this? And mm -hmm. why should we do this? And so the, the more marketers and organizations and even agencies to serve as real partners um, with marketers are able to bring data to the table. I think that's the real power of data, of analytics, again, of, of behavioral testing, A-B testing, split testing. And they can show this to product dev, to business leaders to say, hey, here's what either customers are telling us they want or here's what we've actually tested with customers um, and seeing that, that they actually do desire. Because um, by creating a better product, the, 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 the most valuable thing you can have in a good marketing campaign is a good product, hmm. right? I mean, a good product is 90% of the way there that serves the customer needs. The, then the marketing campaign is really to just show that value, to prove that value, hmm. right? That's what content really is, is, is to prove that value. Get people talking about it. Absolutely, absolutely. And so that, that's, that's the real power of, you know, this whole kind of data revolution. That's the real power of split testing is, is it gives marketers a, a seat at the table and the chance to say, hey, we know and understand and own this customer relationship. And here's the types of things we should be producing for customers. The this or that round. So this is the quick response round. Ten quick questions. Try not to think about the answer too much. I'm just looking for your gut reaction. Ready to go? Yep, let's, let's do it. Email or Twitter? Uh, Twitter. Audio or video? Audio. Affiliates or display advertising? Display. Facebook or Google Plus? Facebook. Online press releases or one-on-one -on -one relations? One-on-one -on -one relations. Paid search or SEO? SEO. Email contact form or telephone number? Email contact form. Website or app? Website, definitely website. Social subscriber or email subscriber? Email subscriber. And local marketing or global marketing? Local marketing. Yay! Moving straight on to... The $10,000 question. If I was to give you $10,000 and you had to spend it over the next few days on a single digital marketing activity, what would you spend it on and how would you measure success? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to answer this question, but I want to give you a hard time on this question. <laughs> Just one moment, okay? So I... Uh, I think part of the challenge that marketers face sometimes is, is they answer these questions and they're not answering the big picture question. Because the big picture question is, how can I sustainably deliver to an audience, right? And that's where things like content can come in. Um, but if you just had $10,000 in a few days, you've got to go for, for 
paid advertising in some sense. So, you know, uh, PPC ads or, or display ads or really what I would go with is probably a product listing ad. Mm. Um, and I would I would focus there and I would I would uh, focus on conversions. So if I could get that product listing ad in there, if I'm really trying to goose my numbers and to have a short amount of time, I'm probably going to heavily discount too. Mm. <laughs> um, and then I would look at, you know, total sales um, and, and total profits. Um, but, the, but the real challenge for us marketers is to get ahead of that, right? So to get to the point where, where we're not just, you know, trying to compete on price like that and to get to the point where we said that's where content comes in to prove that value to customers, to show that value to customers. So we're a first choice, um, not based on price, but based on value. And, and that's how to have, you know, the really good margins. So how do you think I should change the question then? Oh, I think it's a good question. <laughs> I'm, saying, I'm not saying don't ask the question. I am saying it, it may be maybe better as a two part of, you know, what should because because I'll tell you what my focus is on. How do companies build sustainable brands? How do we build sustainable companies? How do we build sustainable marketing campaigns? Mm. And if we start there and then realize that sometimes we're going to be in those, as you mentioned, those last minute efforts where, yeah, we, we got to just uh, push push some numbers towards the end of the quarter. Uh, but we definitely don't want that to be our focus. We want that to be an exception. And we want to learn from that. And we want to say, how can we avoid that in the future, right? Um, and again, it's it's really building that sustainable relationship with the audience and that sustainable value in the product. Well, that would have been a very good number one takeaway. But you've got to find another one now because um, <laughs> we're moving on to. My number one takeaway. So, Daniel, you've offered a lot of great advice in our conversation. Um, but what's the number one takeaway? What's the single most important thing that the businesses need to be focusing on now within whatever they're doing? So I would say I'll I'll uh, just keep it to content as we talked about, and I would say the number one takeaway is nothing is free. So just because you're creating great, high quality content, um, the customer doesn't necessarily care. They don't care you have a free ebook. They don't care you have a free uh, webinar. And so you have to market your free content as much as you would market a paid product. And to do that, you have to answer the ultimate value proposition question, which is, you know, if I am your ideal customer, why would I take this action? Listen to this podcast, you know, download this ebook instead of all other actions. So remember, nothing is free. They're, they're paying with their time. Wonderful. Well, that takes us to the end of our discussion today. So thank you so much for your time, your focus and your willingness to give back. What's the best way for our audience to find out more about you and what you do? Uh, the best thing to do is go to marketingsherpa.com. And as I mentioned, we have tons of free case studies, tons of free marketing information on there. And hopefully it'll, it'll help them with their own jobs. Great stuff. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Digital marketing radio.